This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, Gratitude, is the fourth of four given at the Morning Star Retreat at San Geronimo Lodge, Taos, New Mexico, on December 7, 2011. We have spoken often about how awakening is uh, an unfolding process, something that lasts our whole lifetime and maybe lifetimes before and after this one as well. And um, in that unfolding process for each of us and for the world as a whole, It is a process that is made of this world. It is not the intrusion of some other realm, some other place. It is the waking up of this world. And so it is made of the stuff of this world. And it is made of the qualities of this world. It changes. It grows. It shrinks. Sometimes it... um, swoops like a kestrel or glides like a dolphin. Sometimes the awakening is like a waterfall in the mountains, joyously tumbling over the rocks. And sometimes it feels as though the stream goes underground and we can walk the desert for a long time, longing for a taste of that sweet water again. This is as it should be. This is this world waking up. That's what it's like. So for each of us, awakening will naturally be idiosyncratic. It will be particular to us because it will come through and of each of us in our own idiosyncratic ways. There is only your awakening for you. That is the only template. What there also is, is the tremendous joy of seeing the awakening of others unfold. And to see the gradual lightening of the world unfold. Made up of all of those individual awakenings. If each one is idiosyncratic, if each one is particular to each one of us, it's also true that there are some common elements we can talk about to help us understand where we are, what um, part of the landscape of awakening we might be walking at any particular time. We've been speaking these nights about the seasons of awakening, that there is a kind of autumn and winter and spring and summer of awakening. So those would be common elements that, um, that seem to be part of, of everyone, however it is expressed. There are also a few qualities that seem to be common to every process of awakening. And I wanted to speak about a couple of those tonight. As we awaken, 
it appears to be universal, that there comes in us a dawning sense of the awesome generosity of the world, that it should be possible that we can awaken. The strange thing about it is we're not quite sure where to address our thanks because awakening is so much a process of the world that happens through each of us as individuals. Who do you thank? If you're going to thank anybody or anything, you have to thank everybody and everything because that is the source of this miraculous thing that unfolds in us over a lifetime. So there is this common sense of the great generosity of awakening. And it seems to me, as I look at it, that the taste, the most fundamental taste I can come to of awakening is that of gratitude. The gratitude is also very interesting in that it is an objectless gratitude, which sounds so kind of cold, but it isn't directed anywhere because it's directed everywhere. And it isn't a mood. It isn't something that comes and goes depending on circumstances. This is what we call in the Dharma conditioned. It is not conditioned. It is not dependent on how things are going or how we're feeling about them. That gratitude is an existential state. It becomes a constant state of being for us as our awakening deepens. Because the generosity is such a gift, such a grace that bonks us on the head and falls into our laps all unawares and unexpected. Because the generosity is a gift, it wants to keep on circulating. That's the nature of gifts. If they stop moving, they're not gifts anymore. They become something else like monuments or um, money, (laughs) exchange or something. So the gift wants to go on circulating. And when we have that taste of gratitude in our mouths all the time, when that becomes as much a part of us as skin and bone, we want to help that gift circulate. It's not even that we want to help that gift circulate. We must help circulate that gift. We have no choice. That also becomes our existential state, that we must help circulate the gift. There are lots of forms that takes. Um, There are lots of forms in terms of how we live our lives, what we choose to do and not to do, uh, how we try to be of service to others. Tonight, while we're here in this retreat together, I want to focus on the particular ways that we can requite that sense of gratitude. We can keep that gift circulating in our own heart-minds 
I want to take advantage of the rare intimacy that we come into with our own heart-minds in a retreat like this to explore ways in which we can, in the inner world, requite, begin to requite that gratitude, which, of course, will have tremendous consequences on how we do it in the rest of the world as well. The first way we can requite the gratitude appeared uh, last night in our conversation about dreams. Uh, a lot of you remarked that there was a fair amount of um, death and dismemberment mm-hmm. and um, even violence and um, things that we think of perhaps as shadowed in the dreams. I think this is great, and let me say why. In a retreat like this, we are working so hard to move into our largest spaces, our most capacious spaces, our most generous spaces. We're working at, a lot of times, for, for, for much more than an ordinary life, I think, we're working at the very edges of our capacities of heart and mind. So as we do that, it's really important that the difficult stuff, the gooey stuff, the yucky stuff, gets included too that we not leave that behind, that we not stretch so far toward what we might think of as the light, that we leave behind that which is shadowed. Our willingness to include everything, 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 everything in our inner lives is one way of requiting that gratitude. We turn our back on nothing we explore how spacious are our heart-minds, how capacious, how generous, how willing are they. Can we include everything? Can we, in, some, in this little microcosm of a, a, a single heart-mind, can we replicate the tremendous capaciousness of the universe, which includes everything, which turns nothing away. As great Master Ma said, and I often repeat, uh, for countless eons, no one has ever fallen out of the deep samadhi of Dharma nature. No one has ever fallen out of the universe. Can we do our small version of that and let nothing fall out of our samadhi of Dharma nature within ourselves? Can we include what is difficult? Toward the end of our talking about dreams last night, uh, Martha asked a great question. She asked, how do you know when something is um, 
when you're when when you need to tend to something or you're going over and over and over the same old territory how do you know when it's time to include something and time to let it go what's the difference between letting something go and avoiding it right is that, is that a fair, I sort of expanded what you said but those are those are all tremendously important questions as we um, as we work with including things so I had a few um, thoughts about that over the last the last day um, the first is that that um, we have to try we have to try to make those differentiations <clears throat> because if we leave anything out we're not doing the whole work we have spoken about dukkha about what usually gets translated as suffering which is not a very good translation we've talked about dukkha as incompleteness and about the nature of this world that is impermanent and transient and and in which things are changing all the time the nature of this world is being incompleteness it's never going to be complete it's always going to be in process and then the question becomes what is our relationship to that do we join in that and look for ways that we can help it tend toward wholeness which is as much as we'll ever get a tendency toward wholeness not wholeness itself except wholeness in that very tendency toward wholeness that is the wholeness possible in this world is that is that tendency towards so um, what helps us here is the wisdom of equality that we've been speaking about what helps us address the questions that that Martha brought in is the wisdom of equality because with with that wisdom we're no longer dividing things up into piles based on i like i don't like good bad comfortable not comfortable makes me feel good about myself makes me feel yucky about myself um want this want to be this don't want to be that want to include this don't want to include that that we can't do that with the wisdom of equality because with that wisdom everything has equal value so that also means that it is not possible to make anything especially bad it's not possible with the wisdom of equality to make anything especially bad we can't have a category of aspects of ourselves that are the especially bad categories that we have to treat in special ways because they're especially bad there is no especially bad in the wisdom of equality there is only this and this and this and this so there is still skillful means about how to deal with this and this and this and this without making them especially bad and some of the questions that we might think about asking in these cases are um 
if I'm feeling like moving away from something, am I avoiding it or am I done with it? If I feel magnetized to something, if there's something that feels quite compelling, is that because I am compelled to heal it or is it because I'm indulging it? Am I digging the habit grooves deeper in by whatever way I choose, by moving toward, by moving away, <clears throat> by focusing on, by ignoring? Is that the habit groove? Am I just digging that deeper and deeper and deeper? Or am I freeing something up by what I'm doing? Not only myself, but maybe this thing, this thing that is held prisoner in my heart-mind as much as I am held prisoner by it. It's a kind of mutual hostage-taking, you know? And as we begin to negotiate our way out of this mutual hostage-taking, is something being freed up? If so, then that's probably a good indication that we're moving in, in, um, in a good direction. Um, am I including what has been exiled into the mix? Here's the mix of my inner life. Am I including something that I've orphaned or exiled or pushed away? But, but just including it into the mix. Or am I putting it up on Persephone's throne? Still, one of the best images for this I know of is um, the advice that Psyche is given when she's to go into the underworld and she's told, you have to do this. You have to make this underworld journey. But one thing you should not do while you're there is sit on Persephone's throne. You should not become the queen of the underworld. Make the journey. Do what you have to do. Deal with what you have to deal with. Make the exchanges you have to, um, the hostage negotiations you have to make. But don't sit on Persephone's throne. And don't place anything on Persephone's throne. Don't make anything especially bad. One of the reasons that I say I'm glad um, what came in last night came in is because how can we make these differentiations? How can we do this inquiry and find our way through and learn how to be skillful about deciding whether something um, needs to be brought in or, or let go of, um, attended to, or ignored? How can we make those differentiations if we're not familiar with the material? If we're not familiar with the stuff we've pushed into the shadows, how can we possibly know what to do with, about them, toward them? We have to have a familiarity. We have to have a comfort with them in order to be able to make these differentiations and know what to do best about them. So, if the first requital of our gratitude for the generosity of awakening is this willingness to include everything and to do then the hard work of figuring out what to do with what it is we've included, our willingness to do that, the second requital of that gratitude 
um, is something quite deep and strange and essential. I want to go back to the words of um, the Japanese women I was speak- I've been speaking about at Saragordo and here, and the practices they are developing, the domestic Zen they're developing now in Japan. And one of the things they talk about in dealing with what is difficult in their lives, which um, can be difficult circumstances, illness, trauma, relationship things, um, all kinds of all kinds of the whole range of problems with which we're used to. But they use um, two words when speaking about coming into relationship with what is painful. Um, and the first the first word. Is um, there isn't a, an exact English equivalent, but it's it's the word that's used when you're speaking about um, something that has become f- so familiar that it, it's no longer formal. It's comfortable. You have a relationship with someone, and you've developed a, a, a level of familiarity that you don't use the formal tenses when you speak. You know, there's a kind of comfort you can play with each other and kid each other and um, that so that's the first part of what and that's the root of our word familiar like your family like your family yeah exactly um, so so that that sense of comfort and ease is the first um, attitude the first taste of relationship that they turn toward that which is difficult and then the second word is a word that is usually translated into English as forgiveness. They forgive that which is difficult and painful, that which is dukkha, be it an illness, a traumatic memory, a difficult person, a hard situation. They turn their forgiveness toward it. And in Japanese, that word forgiveness includes a constellation of allowing, of including. This feels to me like something very important for us to consider as a winter practice of requiting our gratitude. If something is difficult, if something is painful, if something erupts, and shows us where there is shadow, where there is fear, where there is um, worry, anxiety, concern, all of that. Can we forgive it? Are we willing to stay with the relationship long enough for some kind of forgiveness to occur? And then here are the extensions of that question I would like to ask. In those moments, in those confrontations with what is so painful and difficult, with what we know has shaped us and sometimes deformed us, with what we know has caused us to cause suffering for others, in our confrontation with those things, can we forgive ourselves? Can we forgive ourselves for having been wounded, for suffering, for having acted from those places, for having abandoned parts of ourselves and exiled them? 
for having treated ourselves unkindly, for having criticized ourselves and judged ourselves for our inabilities, for our lack of capacity, for the ways we suffer. Can we forgive ourselves? Because that equally is requiting that gratitude. And then, let's go a step further. Because where that path leads, if we really follow it with sincerity and openness, where that path leads is to the question, can I forgive the world for being the world? Can I forgive the world for being incomplete, imperfect, painful, devastating, terrifying, as well as heart-stoppingly beautiful, full of generosity and gratitude. But we struggle so much with those parts of the world that are difficult for us to accept. So I'm saying, let's push it. Let us not just accept that the world is as it is. Let us forgive the world for being the world. That doesn't mean that we don't work to change what needs changing. That doesn't mean that we don't care about what is painful and what, what we can do to help. But imagine for a moment the difference between moving toward what we feel um, compelled to do to help in the world with an attitude of unforgiveness and with an attitude of forgiveness. If we can forgive the world, we are not in a fight with it all the time for being the way it is. And all of that energy is freed up to actually do something to help. If we can forgive the world, our hearts do not have to be armored in the way that they are if we don't forgive the world. And all of that energy that gets put into the building and maintenance and repair of those battlements and towers and drawbridges and walls gets freed up to actually be helpful in the world, to directly requite the gratitude we feel for awakening, to directly become the hands and eyes and feet and good hearts and good minds of the generosity of the world which appears as awakening in us, through us, and all around us.
These seem to me like um, quintessential winter practices. This turning inward. This looking to see what we can do in that inner world. This standing on the bare ground. This looking and seeing awakening in all directions, generosity in all directions, and our gratitude extending in all directions. Perhaps we can begin by including, by not leaving anything out, by not exiling any part of ourselves, by bringing ourselves whole, across the threshold and then by forgiving by forgiving that which has hurt us and which continues to hurt us by forgiving ourselves for being hurt and for doing all the things that come out of being hurt and by forgiving the world for being itself. We have been given this awesome gift. Can we respond by taking the risk of laying down the armor, laying down the complaint, laying down everything that separates us, taking the risk of being simple and open and available for the gift to move through us and on into the rest of the world. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.